a Podcast One production. The Canberra bubble. And politicians are accused of becoming encased in a bubble. Or more bluntly, they disappear up their own... Yeah, and forget about the rest of us. It's a widely used term, the bubble, never more so than of late after Prime Minister after Prime Minister has fallen from within, brought down by their own party, while the rest of us look in the real world thinking, what the hell? So what really goes on in Canberra? Why does it seem politicians get to the joint and everything changes as opposed to what they are there for and that gets shuffled to the side? Stephen Conroy spent two decades in Canberra as a Labor senator, finishing up in 2016. Stephen, thanks for your time on Peacock Politics. Now, first question, when you stepped out, what was it like being back to being one of us again in the (laughs) real world? Yeah, look, uh, I probably... Got the experience a little bit earlier. I, when I resigned from serving under Kevin Rudd when he came back, I had a very brutal real-world experience. So I was leader of the government in the Senate, technically listed as number three in terms of the overall rankings in Canberra. And I was scheduled to go to the Wallabies uh, Lions tests. And is the way you're entitled to catch a com car to the match. And after I announced my resignation, I didn't think I was entitled to a com car, but your resignation doesn't come into effect for a, a few days. So I was still entitled to a car. But by the time I realised that, every com car and every taxi uh, and limo was booked out. So I had to uh, get to the match and uh, eventually track down a taxi. Uh, but I'd organised for a, a taxi to pick me up afterwards. And because of the... Uh, they close the streets. A com car can get through a police barricade, a taxi can't. So it's freezing cold. I hadn't taken my coat because I thought I'll be in the taxi, I'll be on my way, and could not find the taxi. It, it couldn't get to me. Uh, I walked literally around the whole circumference of uh, what's now Marvel Stadium, which is quite large. And in the end, I, I said to them, look, I can't find it, I'll give up. So I went into the train station. Fortunately, I did have a Mikey card that did have some money residual on it. Uh, so I could afford to get into the station without having to jump the counters. And I'm standing there uh, without a coat on, freezing to death in sort of really cold Melbourne weather on a platform catching a train. And people are sort of staring at me going, I recognise you. Uh, and so that really brought home the difference from being in the bubble uh, to being... Uh, just part of catching a train home after the footy. To me, that just sounds like a normal Saturday night. <laughs> exactly. So I've, I've had many normal Saturday nights since then. <laughs> yeah, I bet. So take us to the point when you get to Canberra. It, I mean, this bubble term, is it blown out of proportion? I've heard the Prime Minister use it, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister uh, at the time, yeah, use the building, it as... The building has a life of its own. When it starts to happen uh, and it's... It took a few years for the new Parliament House. I grew up working in the old Parliament House as a staffer, which is a tiny building. And so everybody knew everything that was happening in the old building. Uh, So if there was a protest out front of the old Parliament House of 50,000 people, uh, you could hear it reverberating through the building. You knew there was something going on. The new Parliament House removes you from that reality. There can be 50,000 people on the lawns outside the new federal parliament house and you wouldn't know it was happening. The way the building was designed is very, very cleverly and carefully designed to be part of the hill. So it fits beautifully into the surrounding environment, but it does remove you from the actual real world outside. And then if you're a minister, 
you are then in what's called min wing, ministerial wing. And I worked for the speaker at the time that the building was being uh, designed. And I think everybody from Joan Child, who was the speaker at the time down, regrets that they created a ministerial wing because the ministers are now locked away from the backbenchers. So you get a situation where the ministerial staff and the ministers exist in a separate space. A double bubble. It's a double bubble. It's actually like you go to Canberra and you're in one bubble. You go to Parliament House, you're in another bubble. And then if you're in the ministerial wing, you're in a third bubble. You are in the bubble, 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 if we can uh, say that. It's like a babushka doll in Russia. It is. That is is not a bad description. You are just insulated further and further from what's going on outside. I'm not joking when I say you've got 50,000 people on the front lawn of the new parliament house and you would not know it was happening. So you are completely removed from the real world when you're particularly in the ministerial wing. That in itself sounds so dangerous and we'll get to that perhaps a bit later on. But if you're a member of the House of Representatives, you're in your electorate. So you you come back out of sitting weeks and you go back to your electorate and, and press the flesh there. If you're a senator, obviously like in your case, you've got functions and you've got real world stories that you're hearing. So when you get to Canberra, does that all wash away automatically because then you're looking after your position by those that surround you? Look, there is a degree of that. If you do your best to keep your feet on the ground, and it can be hard. Uh, you can spend the entire week in Parliament. I mean, my, my normal day in Canberra was I'd be up by about six o'clock into sometimes play soccer, sometimes to the gym, uh, and I'd get home on average about 10 o'clock at night. So they are long days. Uh, and you can easily get caught up with the people around you. And that is dangerous in its own right. It is frustrating, though. People often think that when Parliament's not sitting, it's a bit like school's out. And mm. school's out, therefore you're on holiday. It is anything but that, particularly if you're in a marginal seat. It's, it's extraordinarily stressful. Uh, I also take my hat off to my former colleagues from, you know, Western Australia, Northern Territory, and uh, the farthest reaches of Queensland. They, they live... an awful life. They spend so much time in the planes. Mm. Uh, At least I was just one plane, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, Melbourne, Canberra. Uh, And you could survive. But the the colleagues from the West, the colleagues from Northern Queensland into just horrible, horrible lifestyle that they had to lead. So yes, you are are surrounded by people uh, and their job is to filter information for you because people will want to talk to you, whether it's a constituent, whether it's a lobby group, whether it's a, uh, an overseas dignitary. They want your time. And you've got a very organised and regimented time. Uh, you don't get that much time to yourself on a day like that, especially if you're a minister. The bells ring, you have question time preparation, your entire focus in the morning before a two o'clock question time is, right, what questions, what's in today's paper? What, what are they going to ask me questions about? What are the issues in my portfolio? Uh, they are all absorbing because it just takes one wrong answer for an election to turn on its head. And so you can be on the floor of parliament answering questions and you stumble slightly and it's all over for you. Just on reality and getting removed from reality when you get inside the the four walls of Parliament House. So what part of reality do you get most easily separated from about what's going on in the real world once you're inside? The impact impact sometimes of your decisions on 
just ordinary Australians. Uh, that That is harsh. You, you do need to be going to those functions. You do need to be listening to your constituents. I mean, Wayne Swan is one of my greatest friends in politics, a magnificent politician. People have very uh, different views about Wayne, but I can tell you, Wayne lost his marginal seat in Queensland in the 1996 election defeat for the Keating government. Uh, and Wayne never forgot that he was there to serve the people. So one of my favourite pastimes on a Saturday morning was giving him a ring and he would almost always be on a street stall on a street corner or at a shopping centre uh, because he learnt the lesson that you can never take your electorate, your voters for granted. So there are people who have absolutely remained rooted to their their constituency and to the people that have elected them. And he never, never forgot that after he got defeated. He was elected in 93, defeated in 96, re-elected in 98. And then from 98 onwards, he was just forensic about staying in touch with his uh, electorate. But you sometimes need that well, in that mm. case, it was a not a near-death experience, a death experience where you have to fight your way back into Parliament. And so maintaining that contact, walking uh, the streets, that is very tough. As a senator, I had a slightly different role. The trade-off between being a senator is you don't have as much constituent work, you don't have as many functions to go to, uh, but you do a lot more travel because the Senate committee process is very rigorous. Uh, the Senate committees travel around the country dealing on all sorts of bills, on all sorts of issues, some you know nothing about, some you really enjoy learning about, some you just think, what am I doing here? Uh, but <laughs> each of those bills in its own right is important because it affects Australians. What, so you go out and... and and yeah, tour around the country. And, we could we could have see a, it face to face. Yeah, absolutely. We advertise we're coming to a particular area. We take submissions. We chase up witnesses and people. Ordinary Australians would appear in front of a Senate committee. It's one of the things that most people don't realise. If you are so uh, agitated about an issue and it's a bill that's coming before the Parliament, you can put a submission, just a one-page letter, into a committee, and that committee, if it thinks the evidence is compelling, can invite you to come and appear before, you know, two, three, four, five, six senators to have your say on the public record. Uh, and it's a really invaluable part of the process. So those committees travel all over Australia. So you don't just say, oh, you've got to come to Canberra to speak to us. We are out touring. So a, a House of Reps, they have a constituency focused in their local area, 80,000 voters. Uh, a senator uh, travels the country. Uh, and listens to uh, constituents face-to-face when they're upset about a bill. And, and that can be a really sobering experience at times. I bet. I bet. It's a touch of reality. Yeah, you, absolutely. You burst the bubble, then you have to pop back inside yeah. the bubble, <laughs> exactly. as it were. A lot of bubble talk here. Just on when you're actually in Canberra and you, you're walking the halls and what I've begun to appreciate talking to various people on this podcast is that it, it seems politicians have as many enemies within their own party as they do <laughs> from the opposition. So my question, when you're inside the walls in Canberra, how many people can you actually trust? Oh, that's, that's a great question. Uh, look, I have, I have lots of colleagues uh, and over a 20-year period, I've probably got half a dozen people that I'd count as my truest friends in that genuine sense. Obviously, Wayne Swan I mentioned. Uh, 
the, I, I was visiting just Canberra just a couple of weeks ago and I was walking down the corridor and I bumped into a Liberal uh, who recognised me. He said, oh, okay, Steve, how are you? Uh, and he, he'd been involved in a bit of the argy-bargy inside the Liberal Party over the, over the last couple of months and he just let fly about those bastards are trying to do me in and he was talking about the bastards in his own party. <laughs> uh, so this is absolutely prevalent. Uh, there's lots of jockeying. There's lots of jealousies. Uh, politicians are like a bell curve of your average Australians. You've got some really incredibly smart ones. You've got you know, some people who work hard, some people who don't work as hard. It's a real bell curve of your average Australia. Uh, if you took a sample of Australians, your politicians are pretty much fit within that distribution of what they call the bell curve. So you get you get all sorts of rivalries, all sorts of jealousies, people who have genuine policy disputes, and that's just in your own party. <laughs> is, is that jealousy born out of a hierarchy situation? Like, I want his job, or I want her job, I can't believe that someone of that ability has got that job, I should be there. Or is it a basically, I don't agree with that person on an issue, they're an idiot, I've got another view? No, look, there's a combination of both of those. Uh, the, there's definitely the, I just don't agree with your perspective, and, and, that's, and that's a legitimate part. But there's also people who are ambitious. I mean, as, they, as I can't remember, was it Paul Keating family said, everyone's got the field marshals uh, batting in their knapsack, uh, and that applies right the way up the totem pole from brand new uh, beginner backbencher to the Prime Minister's job. I mean, even if you go outside of the parliament, there's always, you know, in a party, even in your own seat or your own state, there'd be 20 people who want your job on a daily basis because they think they can do a better job as a senator or as a member of the House of Representatives. And that then just feeds its way up. It it is a very, very competitive situation where lots of people want your job. And, And bottom line is Bill Shorten wants Scott Morrison's job. I wanted Helen Coonan's job. I wanted to be the minister. I didn't want to be the shadow minister. I wanted to try and achieve things. I wanted to try and modernise Australia's uh, communications infrastructure through a national broadband network. And I believe that was absolutely a vital thing for the future of the country. So, and Helen Coonan didn't believe that. So we had very legitimate policy differences and there would be that genuine, robust exchange of ideas. But You'd be, I'd be fibbing to your listeners if I didn't confess. I'd heard people say, how can that idiot be a minister? Mm. Usually about me, but... Uh... <laughs> Did you think that about other people? Oh, look, uh, I, I was very lucky. I, I had a, a good group of friends. Uh, there are people I look at on the on the government side of the benches today and I shake my head and go, how on earth did that person get promoted? Like, what was what was Scott Morrison thinking when he did that? Good answer you didn't do in any of your colleagues there. So. <laughs> Is there a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours mentality in Canberra? There was certainly a lot more camaraderie when I first started in politics over 20 years ago. Uh, that become has become harder and harder over probably the last 10 years. There's a lot more division rather than trying to come together. So you hear about American politics as nobody reaches across the aisle anymore. There's less and less of that in Canberra as well. And that, that is an unfortunate thing because people take partisan positions. Uh, and so 
there's less and less you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But certainly that relationship between politicians and journalists nowadays is very much you give me the scoop and I'll give you a good story and I'll write good things about you. That is absolutely part of the culture now, which I think is terribly destructive. Journalists really struggle in the 24-7 media cycle to break a story first. And so just the ability to be get a leak from a government minister, and this happens on all sides, uh, a leak from a government minister uh, in terms of an announcement which you can put on the front page or on the digital feed, there's very much more than there was when I started 20 years ago. If you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours uh, when it comes to the media, more so than across the, across the aisle nowadays. I'm going to ask a journalist whether they're part of the bubble situation as well. I want to ask you because you're not a journalist. You're just a normal human being now, now that you're outside <laughs> and in the, the, uh, the big wide real world. Um, what are you faced with as a politician still inside these four walls when you bunk it away? What are you faced with in terms of people trying to get your attention oh, it's, to push their point of view? Is no, it relentless? It is relentless. Uh, and I don't say that in a pejorative way. Uh, you have a limited amount of time and people are desperate to try and put their perspective. Uh, sometimes it's for pure self-interest. Sometimes it's because they believe it's in the public interest. And and so you just have cues of people always seeking to talk to you as a backbencher, as a frontbencher, as a minister, uh, as prime minister. You just have an endless number of requests to meet. Probably if you're the opposition just after you've lost an election, it's a bit more lonely. Uh, that first <laughs> six months or so, no one really wants to know the, the losers. Uh, so it can be a bit sobering. Uh, I think Gareth Evans uh, coined the phrase relevance deprivation syndrome uh, after he went from being a minister for many years when the Keating government lost, and there's certainly a bit of that. But it is a relentless pressure from people to see you uh, along the way. Lobbyists, what are they? Uh, lobbyists are people who are employed uh, either directly or indirectly, so you can have a combination of those things, uh, whose job it is to, on behalf of a client or the company that they work for, to put the point of view of the people that they're, they're representing. So uh, the Business Council, probably one of the biggest, most well-known lobby groups, their job is to lobby on behalf of the top 100 companies in Australia. So they will often put in submissions about taxation policy. They'll put in submissions about education and training because the people coming out of schools, they say, aren't you know, in, in a sports sense, what you'd call match fit. And they want to try and adjust the training before they they come out of the educational institutions. Often criticism of the university courses don't relate to the real world that they're moving into, that sort of criticism. So lobbyists' job is to represent the interests of the people who they are uh, they work for and with to impress those points onto politicians so that they're able to have a full understanding. They're, they've become, it's become a pejorative term in some senses, particularly with the amount of money that's spent lobbying with public relations campaigns or advertising campaigns. The mining industry ran a, a highly effective campaign against the then Rudd and Gillard governments over the mining tax. Uh, and so that's the extreme end down to uh, ACOS putting in a budget submission saying we need uh, you to lift the dole, we need you to lift you know, ACOS pensions. Uh, sorry, the uh, Australian Council of Social Security. So the lobby group on behalf of the uh, disadvantaged in Australia. So you've, you've got lobby groups coming from everywhere. Absolutely. To, to, are they part of the bubble? They're, look, they're absolutely part of the bubble and uh, one of the things that they need to do is to 
uh, try and add layers to that bubble uh, so that uh, the politicians don't get to hear an alternative perspective, whether it's from another lobby group or from uh, ordinary Australians who say, you can't be serious, why should we give uh, big business and the biggest companies in the country like the banks a tax cut? Whereas, so the business council are desperate for you just to listen to them only and, and stay inside the Canberra bubble because if you weren't wandering down the streets, you're not going to have people walk up to you going, hey, but I think I think the, uh, the banks in this country need a tax cut. You're just not going to meet someone on the street saying that. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you have to be, you're in four sword fights at once. Usually. When you're you, inside the joint. You are fighting on a number of fronts. You've got the media uh, who can be quite hostile and aggressive if they're disagreeing with you. You've got people in your own party. You've got the uh, the opposition. Uh, you've got uh, lobby groups. Uh, I'm, I, you, I think Yes Minister, that famous uh, British comedy series, which I actually consider to be a training manual, not actually a comedy series, uh, <laughs> where uh, I think... Someone once said to Jim Hacker, the minister, they said, no, no, the opposition are on the other side of the uh, chamber. Your enemies are behind you. So you, you've always got to have an eye over your shoulder and you've always got to be uh, paying attention to your, your own base. I mean, you can imagine as a Labor senator trying to argue to somebody who's on the dole or on the age pension that the biggest priority is a tax cut for the banks over uh, raising the pension or raising the, uh, the dole. Now I'm coming to appreciate it's not so much of a bubble, it's just human nature that you're distracted by the fact that you've got all of this going on around you and you're trying to protect yourself and further your career and further the country all at once. There's only so much one person can do at once, surely. Absolutely. I mean, I I undertook to... uh, create the National Broadband Network uh, and I was resisted by some of the biggest companies in the country. I mean, Telstra on its given day before BHP merged was either the first or the second largest company on the stock exchange by market capitalisation in in the country. And I took Telstra on. Uh, I wanted to open up the telecommunications system. I wanted to create more competition. And Telstra were at times when I was first beginning this, the biggest company in the country. So staring them down, saying we need to modernise our communications infrastructure for the 21st century, for the the tidal wave of data that's coming online and the the changes that are coming. Uh, I mean, I started that, I designed the National Broadband Network literally about a year after the iPhone was invented and before the iPad was invented. So you, you are up against significant forces who prefer the status quo and want no change. And forcing change is the toughest job a politician has to do. I'm still waiting for my MBN too. Yeah, good let's luck. Not go there. Blame Malcolm Turnbull. He <laughs> no, can I'm not going to blame anyone. Stuffed it up. I'm neutral here. I'm, <laughs> you can blame him. I'm not going. I'm just going to sit on the fence and be happy with my 4G at home. <laughs> um, it sounds like I'm trying to evoke a bit of sympathy, given how busy you sound like you are in the bubble. But there's perks. I mean, outside looking in. A lot of people would say politicians, ah, oh, they get the, the car, they get the free travel, they get the, you know, the, all the allowances. Do they play a part in, in your thinking and the way you go about your, your daily routine? Look, yeah, over, over 20 years, sort of one of the biggest changes I've had to make since I became a real person again was uh, if you're going somewhere, so driving to the city for a meeting, uh, the com car will just drop you out the front. Now you've got to add an extra 20 or 30 minutes 
to find somewhere to park. Uh, and, welcome uh, to the real world, Stephen. Yeah, welcome to the real world. That, that, a couple of my colleagues who are retiring have said to me now, Steve, what's it like? You know, they've been in politics you know, 20 odd years as well. I said, the single biggest change is, you know, what? I have to I drive queued for half an hour at Sydney Airport yesterday to get a taxi into the CBD at Sydney Airport, whereas the com car driver was waiting for you. Uh, so it, it's actually- Welcome to the real world, Stephen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But in terms of how busy you are and how the demands on your time, yep. uh, it actually makes your job more efficient. Uh, I mean, we can laugh about the com car drivers. There's two things about them that are important. One, they get you get you there far quicker than having to, you know, wait for taxis. You know, you, you can order a limo. It won't cost you much less. Uh, you can try and have a, a taxi arrangement, which many people have, or Uber as we've got nowadays, but Uber's a relatively new thing. I know most of your listeners will be going, Uber, that's normal. I got, not when we started, it wasn't. <laughs> but also there is a security aspect to it. And I mean that in terms of the conversations, the sort of conversations that you have uh, with your colleagues on the phone and in the back of the car with your colleagues, they are sensitive many, many times. You can be talking about cabinet decisions. You can be talking about all those sorts of important stuff. You need to know that the person listening in the front of the car is utterly trustworthy. Uh, and it doesn't take much to, if you think of Carl Stefanovic and his brother having that phone call in the back of a taxi being recorded to know how mm. things can go very wrong if you're not able to trust. So the system is built to try and protect uh, and establish a trust so that you can be just more efficient as you're trying to do your daily job. Do politicians have the balance right? This is my last one. Do politicians have the balance right between the real world and the world that they live in and the, the life they lead? Uh, look, there's two parts to that. Firstly, in their day job, uh, you can really lose touch. It, it is very easy to lose touch. Uh, and the higher up the tree, as I described from that sort of bubble and bubble and bubble, the further out of touch you can become. And so you can develop a tin ear. You can be in the middle of an argument. And I've seen it many times. I'm sure I have been guilty of it where you're in this argument, you know, on a public forum and you just... You're so intent on trying to press your point home, you're not listening to the things being said to you. So no question, politicians can develop tin ears and just lose touch with reality at a personal level. Trying to get that life balance right is very tough. Part of why I quit politics was my daughter was 10. I'd been in politics her whole life. I'd missed almost half a life. I didn't want to be away from her over those next few years as she was growing up before she decided she didn't want to know her dad. Uh, so I didn't want to miss those next few years. And I, I'm blessed that I've been able to spend and drive her to school two or three times a week, pick her up from school, those sorts of things. So it is really hard to balance that. When you, when you spend half your life in Canberra, uh, you, you absolutely struggle to maintain a life balance, which is why so many marriages break up, so many unhappy kids along the way. That is a very tough balance from the newest backbencher to the longest serving MP. Getting that balance right is, is really tough. Stephen Conroy, we could talk and talk and talk about this subject because it's a fascinating place, Canberra, and inside the bubble sounds equally as fascinating. Don't know if I want to be there permanently, but just to get a little inkling about it from your perspective was fascinating. Thank you very much for your time. And don't forget, through winter, when you go to the footy for the train ride home, Take a coat. <laughs> Thanks very much. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Proud, sound production by Darcy Thompson, theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. 
To hear more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.